I'd like to ask you a question. Why have you come? Why have you come here this morning? It's a wonderful thing to be gathered together in church. But why have you come? Some 1,600 years ago or so, Augustine said, How many seek Jesus for no other object but that he may bestow on them a temporal benefit. One has a business on hand. He seeks the intercession of the clergy. Another is oppressed by one more powerful than himself. He flies to the church. Another desires intervention in his behalf with one with whom he has little influence. One in this and one in that. The church daily is filled with such people. Jesus is scarcely sought after for Jesus' sake. Again, I'm glad that everyone is here. I'm glad that everyone has come to hear about Jesus. But as you think about your heart and your motivations, why have you come? It's my sincere hope that you've come seeking Jesus. Seeking the bread of eternal life. And we're going to to read about that in John chapter 6. As even we will see some people came seeking Jesus simply for earthly benefits, earthly blessings. They didn't care so much about Jesus himself and what he really came to offer them. They only cared about surface level things. And so let's look to John chapter 6. This morning we'll be in John chapter 6 verses 16 through 29. John chapter 6 verses 16 through 29. The apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now when evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll consider them under three main headings. Number one, do not be afraid. Number two, do not work for the food that perishes. Number three, work for the food that endures to eternal life. 
So first of all, do not be afraid. Secondly, do not work for the food that perishes. And thirdly, work for the food that endures to eternal life. So first of all, do not be afraid. In verses 16 and following, John continues his narrative of that account that he's giving about the day that Jesus fed the 5,000. We considered that a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And after Jesus had, had fed the 5,000, Jesus had gone up on a mountain to pray, and the disciples had gotten into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and had headed west across the sea to Capernaum. And the, so the disciples were out there on the sea in the boat. Jesus was not there with them, and the sea became rough because there was a strong wind that was blowing. And this is how things go out on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills. And cool air sometimes comes rushing down out of those hillsides and displaces the warm air over the sea, and it results in this kind of a squall that we see here in John chapter 6. One visitor to the region once described the ravines and gorges that go down to the Sea of Galilee as being gigantic funnels that draw the cold air down out of the mountains. And he said that small as the lake is and placid in general as a molten mirror, I have seen repeatedly that it can quiver and leap and boil like a cauldron when driven by fierce winds. And that was likely what was, what was happening here in John chapter 6. And so the disciples are out there straining at the oars, making slow progress. And then in the midst of it all, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to their boat. And they're frightened. They're frightened because they didn't realize that this was Jesus. Now for those of us who are familiar with the gospel accounts, we might fail to sympathize adequately with the disciples at this point. We might just think, well, of course, Jesus is God. Jesus can walk on the water. We, we know that. What's, what's the big deal? Why, why would you be so scared? Why would you not immediately think, this is Jesus? And we have to remember that we, we have the advantage on them, right? We've, we've read this before, many of us. We've, uh, for many of us, we've, we've heard this time and time again. We've known ever since our childhood that Jesus can walk on the water. But the disciples didn't know that. They'd never seen anything like this before. They're out there in the middle of the sea in a violent storm, and they see someone walking on the water, but they can't tell who it is. That's pretty scary. The accounts given in Matthew and Mark, Mark four, Matthew 14.26 and Mark 6.49, uh, they cry out that it was a ghost. They think this is a ghost out there on the water. Now, if you and I had been there, we probably would have been pretty freaked out as well. But Jesus comes to them and calms their fears. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they recognize who he was. And their fears are relieved. They allow him to come into the boat and they arrive at their destination. And even though this exact experience was certainly unique to them, there's a lesson here for us. One thing we see here is that if someone has a wrong perception of who Jesus is, they're going to have a wrong response to Jesus. When Jesus was out there walking on the water, the disciples saw him. They, they really saw him. The problem was they didn't know that it was him. They didn't know it was Jesus. They thought that Jesus was a ghost. And so they had a wrong view of him, and we shouldn't be surprised that their response was wrong. They shouldn't have been crying out in fear when they saw Jesus out there walking on the water. They should have said, great, we're in trouble, there's Jesus. Let's... Have him join us. That, that makes everything better. 
But instead, they saw Jesus, didn't know it was him, had a wrong view of him, had the wrong response. They cried out, ah, it's ghost. We're in trouble now. We thought the storm was bad. John Gill explained the situation like this. He said, Christ may be sometimes near his people, and they know him not. As the Lord was in the place where Jacob was, and he knew it not, Genesis 28. And for a lack of distinct knowledge of Christ in his person, offices, and grace, persons have wrong apprehensions of him and are filled with dread and fears. But when Christ makes himself known unto them as the able and willing Savior and their Savior and Redeemer, then instead of dreading him as a judge, their fears vanish, their faith increases, and they are ready to do anything he shall order them. And this is something that you and I need to keep in mind. If, if we don't see Jesus rightly, we're not going to respond to him rightly. And this is why it's absolutely vital that we keep clear in our minds just who Jesus is according to Scripture. Jesus is the Son of God, co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And for our salvation, he became a man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he was born and he went about doing good. And ultimately this was all leading to him suffering under Pontius Pilate and going to the cross, being crucified, being killed there for our sins and being buried. And yet he rose again three days later according to the scriptures. And then after revealing himself to his disciples after the resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he's going to come back again to be the judge on the last day. At his voice, all of the dead will be raised, and Christ will judge them. And he will judge them justly in accordance with righteousness and truth. And in the meantime, Christ has commanded that the good news of salvation through him should be proclaimed to all nations in the world. And the content of this good news is that if you believe on Jesus Christ you will be saved. Though you are a sinner and though you're a worse sinner even than you think, more deserving of judgment than you think you are, Christ is a, is a Savior for such sinners. The truth of the matter is, is that myself and everyone here are actually worse sinners than we think we are. We're really evil people, myself included. But God is gracious and God is merciful. If you trust in Jesus, you can receive the forgiveness of your sins, you can be reconciled to God and be saved. You will receive the free gift of eternal life. This, is, this gospel message shows us who Jesus really is. It gives us a clear picture of Jesus Christ. It shows us that he is loving, that he's kind, that he is gracious. It shows us that he is a sympathetic high priest, that he's one who makes a sacrifice. He's the one who is the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is a good shepherd. He takes into his care those who are tired and those who are carrying heavy burdens. He welcomes these people. And not only does he welcome them, he delights in them. They're not a burden to him. He takes away their burdens and lightens their load. He gives them a new heart. He gives them his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who came so that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. And so when the Holy Spirit clears our vision so that we can see Jesus clearly. Our response should be one of faith and repentance. Our response should be one of gladness at what Jesus has done. Our response should be one of joy at Jesus' willingness to 
bear our sins so that he could, could give us the gift of his righteousness and, and save us and reconcile us to God the Father. When we see Jesus rightly, our response should be one of a full submission, recognizing that Jesus is truly Lord of heaven and earth, that all authority has been given to him, that he's so loving and so kind. Why would I not want to follow such a king as him? But on the other hand, if we're confused about what Jesus has done or confused about who he is, if our view of him is confused, then our response is correspondingly going to be confused. It may bring fear. If we fail to see that Jesus is humble and gentle in heart, then we'll be fearful. If we believe that Jesus actually will break a bruised reed, or that he actually will snuff out a dimly burning wick, we'll have reason to be afraid of him, reason to keep far, far, far away from him. But if, on the other hand, we fail to recognize his holiness and the righteousness with which he will judge the world, we may be fooled into thinking that he actually doesn't care what we do and that therefore we can do as we please and still accept, expect that we will be fully accepted by him. Both of these responses are wrong. Both can lead to eternal destruction. And so let's learn to see Jesus rightly, according to his word. Let's see him as he is, fully righteous and holy and yet loving and gracious, merciful, gentle and humble in heart, willing to bring even the worst of sinners to himself. Let's learn to see Jesus rightly, according to his word, and let's respond appropriately. When we see Jesus for who he really is, and we're willing to come to him on his terms, there's no reason to be afraid. Now verses 22 through 24 of John 6 relate how the crowd came to the realization that Jesus was not there where he had been, even though they knew that Jesus' disciples were the ones who had gotten in the boat, and Jesus had not gotten in the boat with them. And so there was no other boat for him to travel in. The next day, there's some other small boats that come over from the town of Tiberias, and so these people take these boats then and travel to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And they show up in Capernaum, they find him, verse 25, they ask him, Rabbi, When did you get here? Now, given their knowledge about how he didn't leave with the disciples and how there was no other boat for him to travel in, they're a bit perplexed as to how Jesus could have gotten there. It probably would have taken him too long to get there by land. He couldn't have been there if he had walked by land probably by this point. And so they're they're a little bit confused about this. And even though Jesus had performed a miracle in getting himself to Capernaum, he had walked out on the sea to the disciples, he's not interested in in putting out this this miracle for the consumption of the crowd. There was already too much of a tendency among them to follow Jesus for base motives. Christ calls out those base motives of theirs in verse 26, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, earlier, this same crowd, John had told us about them in John chapter 6, verse 2, that they followed him because they saw the signs that he was performing. That was, that was what brought them to the feeding of the 5,000. They, they saw what Jesus was doing, and so they, they, they wanted to see more, and they, they showed up there. They saw the signs that he was performing. Certainly, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, the works that Jesus does tell about who he is as the Son of God. But we've also seen that a 
bare interest in just the miraculous works themselves, just kind of a curious interest, can prove to be spiritually dangerous. For some people, they just have an interest in the supernatural event itself. They're kind of caught up in the, in the shock and awe. Oh, wow, that's cool. We've never seen anybody be able to heal somebody before like that. We've never seen anybody do a miracle before. That's, that's pretty amazing. And so some people just are caught up in that, and they don't seek to inquire and dig any deeper about who is this man who can, who can do these miracles? What are these miracles meant to, to teach us? And for these people in particular, these people here in John 6, their initial interest in the miraculous things that Jesus was doing had even degenerated from that into a mere animal longing to be fed. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You ate the bread, and now you want some more. And thus it is that Jesus says to them in verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes. And that's our second point for this morning. Do not work for the food that perishes. This is why these people had come to him. They sought him because they had eaten the bread and had had their fill, and evidently they were hoping to do it again, hoping that we follow Jesus, he'll give us some food. They had sailed across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and had come to Capernaum to see him for the sake of getting food. And it is against this that Jesus warns these people, and by extension warns us as well. Do not work for the food which perishes. Now the statement in itself is obviously hyperbolic, as other statements of our Lord sometimes are. And so he says in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we understand there that Christ is not literally encouraging and commanding us to maim our bodies. That's not what he's doing there. Rather, he is warning us against the seriousness of sin and allowing the sinfulness of our flesh to lead us to eternal destruction in hell. Similarly, he says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We understand that Jesus is speaking comparatively. We're not actually and literally to hate our father, our mother, our wives, our children, and so on. The point is that we must love Christ so much more than them, comparatively. And so likewise here, when Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, we understand that he's speaking comparatively, he's speaking hyperbolically. Compared to the way in which we should work for the food that endures to eternal life, we must not work for the food that perishes. Obviously, on the one hand, we're required to work for the food that perishes. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Likewise, he says to them, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. 
In other words, the apostle commands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that people should work and should work for the food that perishes. They're supposed to work so as to have bread to eat, not to be dependent on others. We have to. This is how the world works. Work is a good institution instituted by God before the created order fell into sin. We have to work. We even have to work for this food that perishes. But we must be very clear that in comparison to our seeking after the food that endures to eternal life, our work for the bread that perishes must be such that it can be regarded as not working at all. By these words of verse 27, our Lord makes a comparison between the things of earth and the things of heaven. And in that comparison, the things of earth are comparatively unimportant. And why so? Well, because it's, it's only temporary. It's only going to last for a little while, and then it's going to perish, and it will be no more. And thus it is that we read in 1 John 3.17, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. And so, as you go about the necessary business of your labors in the world, please take to heed these words of Jesus and recognize the comparative triviality of the world and therefore the triviality of seeking the things of the world, the triviality of seeking after the bread that perishes. If you need some reminders of the triviality of the world and why you should not labor for the bread that perishes, just just think about the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working through that on Wednesday nights. We find that earthly wealth, earthly possessions, ultimately do not satisfy. Solomon says there, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. He says, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. He says again, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. We read about that earlier this morning in Isaiah chapter 55, about why do you, why do you spend your money on these things that do not satisfy? Earthly things are never going to satisfy you. It is in this way that the bread which perishes, whether it be literal food or figuratively the wealth of the world in general, is deceitful. It promises much, but it delivers little. It fails to deliver the satisfaction and the fulfillment that it promised. It fails to deliver in terms of its permanence. It is soon gone. I love the story that our brother Jamie sometimes tells to, to illustrate this about some of the one of the first times he earned some money or something like that. And he, he had this money and he's trying to think, what am I going to do with the money? And so he went to what was a Burger King and, and bought, a, bought a sandwich and ate the sandwich. And it was gone, right? He ate the food and it's gone. There's, there's nothing left of that money that he had spent on the sandwich. It's soon gone. Solomon says, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. And so it is that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 30 and 31, that those who buy should live as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is, is passing away. And so our Lord Jesus says to us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so let's just ask ourselves, how, how's it going? In all of your laboring for the bread that perishes, labor which in its way is necessary, are you laboring for the bread that perishes? Are you really laboring? In other words, is that the driver of your life? Are you placing stock in earthly things? It will only lead to disappointment. It's all going to, f- to fade. It's all going to deteriorate. It's all going to rot. It'll burn down, get stolen, get washed away in a flood, torn up by a tornado, destroyed by vandals. Or even if, you, if what you have built up and accumulated should outlast you, you're approaching a day when the earthly stuff that your labor and sweat and wit and wisdom have accumulated for you will do you no good. You brought nothing into the world, you will take nothing of it with you when you go. And then, what is it going to profit you if you have gained the whole world and yet forfeited your soul? And so are you putting stock in earthly things? Are you ultimately laboring for the bread that perishes? Beware the cost. Beware the disappointment. Beware the loss that you will suffer if that is where your focus is. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so, where is your treasure? Where's your treasure this morning? Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, the Father, God, has set His seal. Jesus commands us here that we are to work for the food which endures to eternal life. And this is, this is our third point for this morning. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to work for the food that endures to eternal life? Well, to consider the meaning here, we should ask two questions. First, what is the food that endures to eternal life? And secondly, what does it mean to work for this food? So, first of all, what is this food? That endures to eternal life. Well, look at what Jesus says here about it. He says that the Son of Man will give this food because God the Father has set his seal on him. God the Father, in other words, has specifically set apart the Son for this great work of giving the food that endures to eternal life. And what is that food that endures to eternal life? Well, look down to to what follows in the text. Uh, verses 32 and 33. It is my Father who will give you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. What is that? Or better, who is that? Look down to verse 35. This is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so ultimately, the food which endures to eternal life is Christ himself who is the bread of life, who came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In the gospel, Christ gives us himself so that we, being united to him, may have eternal life in him. And so it is that John says in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The food which endures to eternal life 
is Christ himself. And in the gospel, he gives himself for the life of the world by his death on the cross and by his resurrection three days later. And here he announces that he will give this food to those who labor for it. He will give himself to those who labor. If I may borrow the words of one minister from olden time, though you cannot get it by your labor, yet upon your laboring for it, he will give it to you, to every one of you without exception. Whosoever therefore shall labor so as to come unto him for it can never miss of it, but is as certain to have it as God has said it. As we see here in the text, this statement of Jesus brings forth a question from the crowd in verse 28. They hear about this laboring for the food that endures to eternal life, and immediately they ask what they ought to do so that they may work the works of God. And Jesus gives the answer in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in him whom the Father has sent. In other words, believe in Jesus Christ. This is the chief work and the mainspring in the labor which we must do so as to obtain this food that endures to eternal life. This is the chief thing. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. Namely, believe in Jesus Christ. This means receiving the testimony that God has given to us concerning his only begotten Son and trusting in the person concerning whom that testimony is given. In doing this, we receive Jesus, we rest upon him, we trust that he came into the world to save sinners and that he has in fact done this by his cross and resurrection. And though faith is the chief thing in that labor which we are commanded to do, saving faith in Christ is never alone. The kind of belief which is here commanded by Christ is not a mere acceptance of the facts concerning Christ, but rather a true belief in Christ which leads to a true submission to Christ himself. And what that means then is that none of us should breathe a sigh of relief this morning as if our labor in this regard is over. We shouldn't simply look at verse 29 and then look at ourselves as Christians and say, I did it. I have believed. I believed maybe a long time ago. My work and my labor for the bread that endures to eternal life is finished. I can sit down and breathe a sigh of relief now and actually use my time now to labor for the bread that perishes. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Not at all. All of us who are in Christ, all of us who have believed, whether recently or years ago, still have work to do. There's still labor to do. If this were just a matter of superficially believe in Jesus, check the box, and move on, then how could our Lord say, do not work for the food that perishes? but for the food that endures to eternal life. We have to work each day for the food that perishes. We have to labor and toil by the sweat of our brow for the bread that perishes. But yet this labor should pale in comparison to our labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. And so what does this mean then? What do we have to do? Obviously the first and main thing is believe in Jesus. Believe in him whom he has sent. But what then? Well, just consider the words of Christ, Luke 13, 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So we strive to enter. We believe in Christ. We submit ourselves to him. Or think of the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do, not, do you not know that all 
who, uh, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So Paul says he runs. He disciplines himself so that he will not be disqualified. He says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He says to the Romans, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you put it to death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is what it means to labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. Similarly, Jude says in Jude 20 and 21, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. In other words, as the beloved people of God, we have a responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we do this by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. We do this by praying in the Holy Spirit. We do this by anxiously waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And a point that is to be observed here is that our faith in Christ is something that is not static. That is to say, it doesn't stand still. It either grows and increases or else it declines and decreases. Jude says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And so how do we do this? How do we labor so as to nourish our trust in Christ, which trust in Christ is the main labor which we are called to do here. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, we long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Craving the, the pure milk of the word of God means craving our nourishment, craving that which will, which will nourish our souls, and this will manifest itself in, in reading the Word of God, or what is even more important, sitting under the, the preaching of God's Word in the local church, being with brothers and sisters who, who love us and help us as we try to walk together with Christ. Our faith is, is nourished and built as we receive the, the pure milk of God's Word. Second Peter chapter 1 also shows us how to labor, namely that we add to our faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, at the knowledge, self-control, at the self-control, perseverance, at the perseverance, godliness, at the godliness, brotherly kindness, at the brotherly kindness, love. Peter says that if those qualities are yours and are increasing, then they keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think all of us here who are Christians want to be effective and productive, not ineffective and unproductive. And so Peter says, add to your faith. Goodness and the goodness knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. He says that if you lack these things, you're short-sighted and blind and have forgotten that you've been cleansed of your past sins. This is, to use Jude's terms, how we keep ourselves in the love of God. This is how we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Or to put it in Jesus' terms of John 15, we abide in Him as a branch abides in the vine. And how do we, how do we abide in Christ? John fifteen ten, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
So this is how we are to labor for this food which endures to eternal life by abiding in Christ, which means continually seeking after Christ, continually seeking Him, seeking to walk with Him, seeking to obey Him, seeking to to worship Him through His Word and prayer and public worship and coming to the Lord's table with the church. Abiding in Christ means earnestly seeking to obey Him, seeking the grace and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit which shows that we are Christ's disciples. Because we know that left to ourselves, our own labor is nothing. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can only labor faithfully. We can only labor effectively if we abide in the vine. Certainly none of these things, none of this labor, earns eternal life for us. We can't earn it. Christ alone gives eternal life to his people. It comes as a free gift through faith. Again, though you cannot get it by your labor, yet upon your laboring for it, he will give it to you. The bread that endures to eternal life comes to us as a free gift through faith. But that faith which receives Christ as Lord is an active faith, and we must be active in that faith, seeking to strengthen and nourish it, and being in good earnest about the eternal well-being of our souls, knowing that if we do not seek to strengthen and nourish our soul and our faith, that then the weeds and thorns grow up that choke the word of Christ in our lives. Jesus thought about that in the parable of the sower. He said that the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Again, faith is not something that is static. It doesn't stand still. It either increases and grows, or it declines and can be choked by the world. It can be choked by the bread that perishes, if that's where our focus is. And so let me just, just ask you, What are you working for this morning? Are you giving your primary attention to laboring for the bread that perishes? Most people are. Most people do that very thing. They spend their time engrossed in the things of the world. Earthly pursuits that they judge will be of their benefit in some way or another. Sometimes this manifests itself in economic pursuits. Sometimes in the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. Sometimes it shows itself in other ways. And not all of these things are are necessarily bad in and of themselves. I'm not saying that. But they become bad if they become the main thing. If they become the main thing that you are working for. So labor not for the bread that perishes. Because you'll be the loser in the long run. Labor rather for the bread that endures to eternal life. That bread which the Son of Man will give to you. And so let us do what the writer to the Hebrews said when he said be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience let's do what paul said he said in second corinthians 7 1 let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of god the bread that perishes will disappoint the bread that endures forever does not disappoint you won't be sorry for pursuing holiness when you stand before Jesus. You will not be sorry for laboring to enter that rest when you have to stand before Jesus on the last day. You will not be sorry that you labored for the food which endures to eternal life when you stand before Christ. And again, it's Christ who gives this food to you. In the gospel, Christ gives you himself. And so let's come to him in faith that we may receive him 
and receive him with such a living faith that performs acts of righteousness, faith that obtains promises, faith that is made strong out of weakness. So let's come to Christ, seeking that better and heavenly country, and ultimately seeking Christ himself, as the bread of life, who alone can satisfy our souls. Let's pray. Our Father, we hear in these words how so often our pursuits are so wrong-headed, how we often love and labor for the things of this world. Lord, let us recognize that these things are going to fade. These things are going to, to perish one day. Let us look to Christ and let us seek after him. Fill us with faith in him and Coming to him in faith, we ask, Lord, that we be strengthened by your Holy Spirit to walk in all of those ways which Christ has commanded us. We pray that you fill us with joy and with love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.